This is Taiko Alhambra, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to the Weird Tales podcast. We've just recently finished up doing National Poetry Month, in which we did a poem a day. That was a little bit of a slog, but we made it and we got through. Uh, I have already planned out what I'm going to be doing for next April. And uh, just as a quick little foreshadow for everybody, there's a secret October project also in the works. So that will be fun to do. Uh, I wanted to say thank you all for listening. Thank you for sticking with us through National Poetry Month and... Uh, we're back to our regularly scheduled weirdness. Today we have a little bit of a double header because they're both short stories. Uh, I'm doing two stories by Edgar Allan Poe today. The first one is Never Bet the Devil Your Head, and the second one is Three Sundays in a Week. Um, and I will go ahead and tell you now that they're not particularly great stories, but they're stories that I love, and I have loved them ever since I read them as a kid, uh, reading through my complete works of Edgar Allan Poe collection that I, for some reason, had as a child. So, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. If you want to contact me over Twitter, you can find me at Tycho underscore Alhambra, A-L-H-A-M-B-R-A, or you can email me about anything you want. I am happy to hear from anybody at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. Never bet the devil your head. Don Thomas de la Torres in the preface to his amatory poems, says, in plain English, that, provided the morals of an author are pure personally, it signifies nothing what are the morals of his books. We presume that Don Thomas is now in purgatory for the assertion. It would be a clever thing, too, in the way of poetical justice, to keep him there until his amatory poems get out of print or are laid definitely upon the shelf through lack of readers. Every fiction should have a moral, and, what is more to the purpose, the critics have discovered that every fiction has. Philip Melanchthon, some time ago, wrote a commentary upon the Batrachomiomachia, and provided that the poet's object was to excite a distaste for sedition. Pierre Lazane, going a step farther, shows that the intention was to recommend to young men temperance in eating and drinking. Just so, too, Jacobus Hugo has satisfied himself that, by Eunice, Homer meant to insinuate John Calvin by Antonus, Martin Luther, by the Lotophagi, Protestants in general, and by the Harpies, the Dutch. Our more modern scholiasts are equally acute. These fellows demonstrate a hidden meaning in The Antediluvians, a parable in Powhatan, new views in Cock Robin, and transcendentalism in Hop o' My Thumb. In short, it has been shown that no man can sit down to write without a very profound design. Thus, to authors in general, much trouble is spared. A novelist, for example, need have no care of his moral. It is there, that is to say it is somewhere, and the moral and the critics can take care of themselves. When the proper time arrives, all that the gentleman intended and all that he did not intend will be brought to light, in the dial or the downeaster, together with all that he ought to have intended and the rest that he clearly meant to intend, so that it will all come very straight in the end. There is no ground, therefore, for the charge brought against me by certain ignoramuses that I have never written a moral tale, or, in more precise words, a tale with a moral. They are not the critics predestined to bring me out and develop my morals. That is the secret. By and by, the North American quarterly humdrum will make them ashamed of their stupidity. In the meantime, by way of staying execution, by way of mitigating the accusations against me, I offer the sad history appended a history about whose obvious moral there can be no question whatever, since he who runs may read it in the large capitals which form the title of the tale. 
I should have credit for this arrangement, a far wiser one than that of La Fontaine and others, who reserve the impression to be conveyed until the last moment, and thus sneak it in at the fag-end of their fables. He, affected by an injury, is not dead, was a law of the Twelve Tables, and it is an excellent injunction, even if the dead in question be nothing but dead small beer. It is not my design, therefore, to vituperate my deceased friend, Toby Dammit. He was a sad dog, it is true, and a dog's death it was that he died, but he himself was not to blame for his vices. They grew out of a personal defect in his mother. She did her best in the way of flogging him while an infant, for duties to her well-regulated mind were always pleasures, and babies, like tough steaks or the modern Greek olive trees, are invariably the better for beating. But, poor woman, she had the misfortune to be left-handed, and a child flogged left-handedly had better be left unflogged. The world revolves around from right to left. It will not do to whip a baby from left to right. If each blow in the proper direction drives an evil propensity out, it follows that every thump in an opposite one knocks its quota of wickedness in. I was often present at Toby's chastisements, and, even by the way in which he kicked, I could perceive that he was getting worse and worse every day. At last I saw, through the tears in my eyes, that there was no hope of the villain at all, and one day, when he had been cuffed until he grew so black in the face that one might have mistaken him for a little African, and no effect had been produced beyond that of making him wriggle himself into a fit, I could stand it no longer, but went down upon my knees forthwith, and uplifting my voice, made prophecy of his ruin. The fact is that his precocity in vice was awful. At five months of age he used to get into such passions that he was unable to articulate. At six months I caught him gnawing a pack of cards. At seven months he was in the constant habit of catching and kissing the female babies. At eight months he peremptorily refused to put his signature to the temperance pledge. Thus he went on increasing in iniquity month after month until, at the close of the first year, he not only insisted upon wearing mustaches, but had contracted a propensity for cursing and swearing and for backing his assertions by bets. Through this latter most ungentlemanly practice, the ruin which I had predicted to Toby Dammit overtook him at last. The fashion had grown with his growth and strengthened with his strength, so that, when he came to be a man, he could scarcely utter a sentence without interlarding it with a proposition to gamble. Not that he actually laid wagers, no. I will do my friend the justice to say that he would as soon have laid eggs. With him the thing was a mere formula, nothing more. His expressions on his head had no meaning attached to them whatever. They were simple, if not altogether innocent expletives, imaginative phrases wherewith to round off a sentence. When he said, I'll bet you so-and-so, nobody ever thought of taking him up but still I could not help thinking it my duty to put him down. The habit was an immoral one, and so I told him. It was a vulgar one, this I begged him to believe. It was discountenanced by society. Here I said nothing but the truth. It was forbidden by act of Congress. Here I had not the slightest intention of telling a lie. I remonstrated, but to no purpose. I demonstrated, in vain. I entreated, he smiled. I implored, he laughed. I preached, he sneered. I threatened, he swore. I kicked him. He called for the police. I pulled his nose. He blew it and offered to bet the devil his head that I would not venture to try that experiment again. Poverty was another vice which the peculiar physical deficiency of Dammit's mother had entailed upon her son. He was detestably poor, and this was the reason, no doubt, that his expletive expressions about betting seldom took a pecuniary turn. I will not be bound to say that I ever heard him make use of such a figure of speech as, I'll bet you a dollar, it was usually, I'll bet you what you please, or I'll bet you what you dare, or I'll bet you a trifle, 
or else, more significantly still, I'll bet the devil my head. This latter form seemed to please him best, perhaps because it involved the least risk, for Dammit had become excessively parsimonious. Had anyone taken him up, his head was small, and thus his loss would have been small too. But these are my own reflections, and I am by no means sure that I am right in attributing them to him. At all events, the phrase in question grew daily in favor, notwithstanding the gross impropriety of a man betting his brains like banknotes. But this was a point which my friend's perversity of disposition would not permit him to comprehend. In the end, he abandoned all other forms of wager and gave himself up to, I'll bet the devil my head, with a pertinacity and exclusiveness of devotion that displeased not less than it surprised me. I am always displeased by circumstances for which I cannot account. Mysteries force a man to think, and so injure his health. The truth is, there was something in the air with which Mr. Dammit was wont to give utterance to his offensive expression, something in his manner of enunciation which at first interested and afterwards made me very uneasy, something which, for want of a more definite term at present, I must be permitted to call queer, but which Mr. Coleridge would have called mystical, Mr. Kant pantheistical, Mr. Carlyle twistical, and Mr. Emerson hyperquisitistical. I began not to like it at all. Mr. Dammit's soul was in a perilous state. I resolved to bring all my eloquence into play to save it. I vowed to serve him as St. Patrick in the Irish Chronicle is said to have served the toad, that is to say, awaken him to a sense of his situation. I addressed myself to the task forthwith. Once more I betook myself to remonstrance. Again I collected my energies for a final attempt at expostulation. When I had made an end of my lecture, Mr. Dammit indulged himself in some very equivocal behavior. For some moments he remained silent, merely looking at me inquisitively in the face. But presently he threw his head to one side and elevated his eyebrows to a great extent. Then he spread out the palms of his hands and shrugged up his shoulders. Then he winked with the right eye. Then he repeated the operation with his left. Then he shut them both up very tight. Then he opened them both so very wide that I became seriously alarmed for the consequences. Then... Applying his thumb to his nose, he thought proper to make an indescribable movement with the rest of his fingers. Finally, setting his arms akimbo, he condescended to reply. I can call to mind only the beads of his discourse. He would be obliged to me if I would hold my tongue. He wished none of my advice. He despised all my insinuations. He was old enough to take care of himself. Did I still think him baby, damn it? Did I mean to say anything against his character? Did I intend to insult him? Was I a fool? Was my maternal parent aware, in a word, of my absence from the domiciliary residence? He would put this latter question to me as to a man of veracity, and he would bind himself to abide by my reply. Once more he would demand explicitly if my mother knew that I was out. My confusion, he said, betrayed me, and he would be willing to bet the devil his head that she did not. Mr. Dammit did not pause for my rejoinder. Turning upon his heel, he left my presence with undignified precipitation. It was well for him that he did so. My feelings had been wounded. Even my anger had been aroused. For once, I would have taken him up upon his insulting wager. I would have won for the archenemy Mr. Dammit's little head, for the fact is, my mamma was very well aware of my temporary absence from home. But, heaven gives relief, as the Musselmans say when you tread upon their toes. It was in pursuance of my duty that I had been insulted, and I bore the insult like a man. It now seemed to me, however, that I had done all that could be required of me in the case of this miserable individual, and I resolved to trouble him no longer with my counsel, but to leave him to his consciousness and himself. But although I forbore to intrude with my advice, 
I could not bring myself to give up his society altogether. I even went so far as to humor some of his less reprehensible propensities, and there were times when I found myself lauding his wicked jokes as epicures do mustard, with tears in my eyes. So profoundly did it grieve me to hear his evil talk. One fine day, having strolled out together arm in arm, our route led us in the direction of a river. There was a bridge, and we resolved to cross it. It was roofed over by way of protection from the weather, and the archway having but few windows was thus very uncomfortably dark. As we entered the passage, the contrast between the external glare and the interior gloom struck heavily upon my spirits. Not so upon those of the unhappy Dammit, who offered to bet the devil his head that I was hipped. He seemed to be in an unusual good humor. He was excessively lively, so much so that I entertained I know not what of... He was excessively lively, so much so that I entertained I know not what of uneasy suspicion. It is not impossible that he was affected with the transcendentals. I am not well enough versed, however, in the diagnosis of this disease, to speak with decision upon the point, and unhappily there were none of my friends of the dial present. I suggest the idea, nevertheless, because of a certain species of austere Mary Andrewism, which seemed to beset my poor friend, and caused him to make quite a tomfool of himself. Nothing would serve him but wriggling and skipping about under and over everything that came in his way, now shouting out and now lisping out all manner of odd little and big words, yet preserving the gravest face in the world all the time. I really could not make up my mind whether to kick or to pity him. At length, having passed nearly across the bridge, we approached the termination of the footway, when our progress was impeded by a turnstile of some height. Through this I made my way quietly, pushing it around as usual. But this turn would not serve the turn of Mr. Dammit. He insisted upon leaping the stile, and said he could cut a pigeon wing over it in the air. Now this, conscientiously speaking, I did not think he could do. The best pigeon winger over all kinds of style was my friend Mr. Carlyle, and as I knew he could not do it, I would not believe that it could be done by Toby Dammit. I therefore told him in so many words that he was a braggadocio, and could not do what he said. For this I had reason to be sorry afterward for he straightway offered to bet the devil his head that he could. I was about to reply, notwithstanding my previous resolutions, with some remonstrance against his impiety, when I heard, close at my elbow, a slight cough, which sounded very much like the ejaculation, Ahem! I started and looked about me in surprise. My glance at length fell into a nook of the framework of the bridge, and upon the figure of a little lame old gentleman of venerable aspect. Nothing could be more reverend than his whole appearance, for he not only had on a full suit of black, but his shirt was perfectly clean, and the collar turned very neatly down over a white cravat, while his hair was parted in front like a girl's. His hands were clasped pensively together over his stomach, and his two eyes were carefully rolled up into the top of his head. Upon observing him more closely, I perceived that he wore a black silk apron over his small clothes, and this was a thing which I thought very odd. Before I had time to make any remark, however, upon so singular a circumstance, he interrupted me with a second, Ahem. To this observation, I was not immediately prepared to reply. The fact is, remarks of this laconic nature are nearly unanswerable. I have known a quarterly review nonplussed by the word fudge. I am not ashamed to say, therefore, that I turned to Mr. Dammit for assistance. Dammit, said I, what are you about? Don't you hear? The gentleman says, ahem. I looked sternly at my friend while I thus addressed him, for to say the truth, I felt particularly puzzled, and when a man is particularly puzzled, he must knit his brows and look savage, or else he is pretty sure to look a fool. "'Damn it!' observed I, 
although this sounded very much like an oath, than which nothing was further than my thoughts. Damn it, I suggested. The gentleman says, ahem. I do not attempt to defend my remark on the score of profundity. I did not think it profound myself, but I have noticed that the effect of our speeches is not always proportionate with their importance in our own eyes. And if I had shot Mr. D through and through with a Pakeson bomb, or knocked him in the head with the poets and poetry of America, he could hardly have been more discomfited than when I addressed him with those simple words. Damn it! What are you about? Don't you hear? The gentleman says, ahem! You don't say so, gasped he at length, after turning more colors than a pirate runs up, one after the other when chased by a man of war. Are you quite sure he said that? Well, at all events, I am in for it now, and may as well put a bold face upon the matter. Here goes, then. Ahem! At this, the little old gentleman seemed pleased. God only knows why. He left his station at the nook of the bridge, limped forward with a gracious air, took Dammit by the hand, and shook it cordially, looking all the while straight up in his face with an air of the most unadulterated benignity which it is possible for the mind of man to imagine. I am quite sure you will win it, Dammit, said he with the frankest of all smiles, but we are obliged to have a trial, you know, for the sake of mere form. Ahem! replied my friend, taking off his coat with a deep sigh, tying a pocket-handkerchief around his waist, and producing an unaccountable alteration in his countenance by twisting up his eyes and bringing down the corners of his mouth. Ahem! And, ahem! he said again, after a pause, and not another word more than, ahem! did I ever know him to say after that. Aha! thought I, without expressing myself aloud. This is quite a remarkable silence on the part of Toby, damn it and is no doubt a consequence of his verbosity upon a previous occasion. One extreme induces another. I wonder if he has forgotten the many unanswerable questions which he propounded to me so fluently on the day when I gave him my last lecture. At all events, he is cured of the transcendentals. Ahem! Here replied Toby, just as if he had been reading my thoughts and looking like a very old sheep in a reverie. The old gentleman now took him by the arm and led him more into the shade of the bridge, a few paces back from the turnstile. "'My good fellow,' said he, "'I make it a point of conscience to allow you this much run. "'Wait here until I take my place by the stile, "'so that I may see whether you go over it handsomely and transcendentally, "'and don't omit any flourishes of the pigeon-wing. "'A mere form, you know. "'I will say one, two, three, and away. "'Mind you, start at the word away.' "'Here he took his position by the stile, "'paused a moment as if in profound reflection, "'then looked up, and I thought, smiled very slightly, then tightened the strings of his apron, then took a long look at Dammit, and finally gave the word as agreed upon. One, two, three, and away! Punctually, at the word away, my poor friend set off in a strong gallop. The style was not very high, like Mr. Lord's, nor yet very low, like that of Mr. Lord's reviewers, but upon the whole I made sure that he would clear it. And then, what if he did not? Ah, that was the question. What if he did not? What right, said I, had the old gentleman to make any other gentleman jump? The little old dot and carry one. Who is he? If he asks me to jump, I won't do it. That's flat, and I don't care who the devil he is. The bridge, as I say, was arched and covered in a very ridiculous manner, and there was a most uncomfortable echo about it at all times. An echo which I never before so particularly observed as when I uttered the four last words of my remark. But what I said, or what I thought, or what I heard, occupied only an instant. In less than five seconds from his starting, my poor Toby had taken the leap. I saw him run nimbly, and spring grandly from the floor of the bridge, cutting the most awful flourishes with his legs as he went up. 
I saw him high in the air, pigeon-winging it to admiration just over the top of the style, and of course I thought it an unusually singular thing that he did not continue to go over, but the whole leap was the affair of a moment, and before I had a chance to make any profound reflections, down came Mr. Dammit on the flat of his back, on the same side of the style from which he had started. At the same instant, I saw the old gentleman limping off at the top of his speed, having caught and wrapped up in his apron something that fell heavily into it from the darkness of the arch just over the turnstile. At all this I was much astonished, but I had no leisure to think, for damn it lay particularly still, and I concluded that his feelings had been hurt, and that he stood in need of my assistance. I hurried up to him, and found that he had received what might be termed a serious injury. The truth is, he had been deprived of his head, which, after a close search, I could not find anywhere, so I determined to take him home and send for the homeopathists. In the meantime, a thought struck me, and I threw open an adjacent window of the bridge, when the sad truth flashed upon me at once. About five feet just above the top of the turnstile, and crossing the arch of the footpath so as to constitute a brace, there extended a flat iron bar, lying with its breadth horizontally, and forming one of a series that served to strengthen the structure throughout its extent. With the edge of this brace, it appeared evident that the neck of my unfortunate friend had come precisely in contact. He did not long survive his terrible loss. The homeopathists did not give him little enough physic, and what little they did give him he hesitated to take. So in the end he grew worse, and at length died, a lesson to all riotous livers. I bedewed his grave with my tears, worked a bar sinister on his family escutcheon, and for the general expenses of his funeral, sent in my very moderate bill to the Transcendentalists. The scoundrels refused to pay it, so I had Mr. Dammit dug up at once and sold him for dog's meat. Three Sundays in a Week "'You hard-headed, dunder-headed, obstinate, rusty, crusty, musty, fusty old savage!' said I in fancy one afternoon to my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon, shaking my fist at him in imagination. Only in imagination." The fact is, some trivial discrepancy did exist, just then, between what I said and what I had not the courage to say, between what I did and what I had half a mind to do. The old porpoise, as I opened the drawing-room door, was sitting with his feet upon the mantelpiece and a bumper of port in his paw, making strenuous efforts to accomplish a ditty. "'My dear uncle,' said I, closing the door gently and approaching him with the blandest of smiles, you are always so very kind and considerate, and have evinced your benevolence in so many, so very many ways, that, that I feel I have only to suggest this little point to you once more, to make sure of your full acquiescence. <laughs> said he, good boy, go on. I am sure, my dearest uncle, you confounded old rascal, that you have no design, really, seriously, to oppose my union with Kate. This is merely a joke of yours. I know <laughs> how very pleasant you are at all times. Ha, 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 said he. Curse you, yes. To be sure, of course, I knew you were jesting. Now, uncle, all that Kate and myself wish at present is that you would oblige us with your advice as, as regards the time. You know, uncle, in short, when will it be most convenient for yourself that the wedding shall, shall come off, you know? Come off, you scoundrel! What do you mean by that? Better wait till it goes on. <laughs> that's good. Oh, that's capital. Such a wit. But but all we want just now, you know, Uncle, is that you would indicate the time precisely. Ah, precisely? Yes, Uncle. That is, it, it would be quite agreeable to yourself. Wouldn't it answer, Bobby, if I were to leave it at random, sometime within a year or so, for example, must I say precisely? 
If you please, Uncle. Precisely. Well then, Bobby, my boy, you're a fine fellow, aren't you? Since you will have the exact time, I'll... Why, I'll oblige you for once. Dear Uncle, hush, sir. I'll oblige you for once. You shall have my consent and the plum. We mustn't forget the plum. Let me see. When shall it be? Today's Sunday, isn't it? Well, then you shall be married precisely, precisely now, mind, when three Sundays come together in a week. Do you hear me, sir? What are you gaping at? I say you shall have Kate and her plum when three Sundays come together in a week, but not till then, you young scapegrace, not till then, if I die for it. You know me, I'm a man of my word. Now be off. Here he swallowed his bumper of port while I rushed from the room in despair. A very fine old English gentleman was my granduncle Rumgudgeon, but unlike him of the song, he had his weak points. He was a little, pursy, pompous, passionate, semicircular somebody with a red nose, a thick skull, a long purse, and a strong sense of his own consequence. With the best heart in the world, he contrived through a predominant whim of contradiction to earn for himself, among those who only knew him superficially, the character of a curmudgeon. Like many excellent people, he seemed possessed with a spirit of tantalization, which might easily, at a casual glance, have been mistaken for malevolence. To every request, a positive no was his immediate answer, but in the end, in the long, long end, there were exceedingly few requests which he refused. Against all attacks upon his purse, he made the most sturdy defense, but the amount extorted from him at last was generally in direct ratio with the length of the siege and the stubbornness of the resistance. In charity, no one gave more liberally or with a worse grace. For the fine arts, and especially for the Bell's letters, he entertained a profound contempt. With this, he had been inspired by Casimir Perrier, whose pert little query, a poet, what is he good at? He was in the habit of quoting, with a very droll pronunciation, as the ne plus ultra of logical wit. Thus my own inkling for the muses had excited his entire displeasure. He assured me one day, when I asked him for a new copy of Horace, that the translation of Poeta Nascitor Non Fit was a nasty poet for nothing fit, a remark which I took in high dudgeon. His repugnance to the humanities had also much increased of late by an accidental bias in favor of what he supposed to be natural science. Somebody had accosted him in the street, mistaking him for no less a personage than Dr. Double L. D., the lecturer upon quack physics. This sent him off at a tangent, and just at the epoch of this story, for story it is getting to be, after all, my granduncle Rumgudgeon was accessible and pacific only upon points which happened to chime in with the caprioles of the hobby he was riding. For the rest, he laughed with his arms and legs, and his politics were stubborn and easily understood. He thought, with hoarsely, that the people have nothing to do with the laws but to obey them. I had lived with the old gentleman all my life. My parents, in dying, had bequeathed me to him as a rich legacy. I believe the old villain loved me as his own child, nearly, if not quite as well as he loved Kate, but it was a dog's existence that he led me, after all. From my first year until my fifth, he obliged me with very regular floggings. From five to fifteen, he threatened me, hourly, with the house of correction. From fifteen to twenty, not a day passed in which he did not promise to cut me off with a shilling. I was a sad dog, it is true, but then it was a part of my nature— a point of my faith. In Kate, however, I had a firm friend, and I knew it. She was a good girl, and told me very sweetly that I might have her, plum and all, whenever I could badger my granduncle Rumgudgeon into the necessary consent. Poor girl, 
She was barely 15, and without this consent, her little amount in the funds was not come atable until five immeasurable summers had dragged their slow length along. What then to do? At 15, or even at 21, for I had now passed my fifth Olympiad, five years in prospect are very much the same as 500. In vain we besieged the old gentleman with importunities. Here was a piece de resistance, as Messieurs Uday and Carême would say, which suited his perverse fancy to a T. It would have stiffened the indignation of Job himself to see how much like an old mouser he behaved to us two poor wretched little mice. In his heart, he wished for nothing more ardently than our union. He had made up his mind to this all along. In fact, he would have given ten thousand pounds from his own pocket, Kate's plum was her own, if he could have invented anything like an excuse for complying with our very natural wishes. But then we had been so imprudent as to broach the subject ourselves. Not to oppose it under such circumstances, I sincerely believe, was not in his power. I have said already that he had his weak points, but in speaking of these I must not be understood as referring to his obstinacy, which was one of his strong points. When I mention his weakness, I have allusion to a bizarre old womanish superstition which beset him. He was great in dreams, portents of rigmarole. He was excessively punctilious, too, upon small points of honor, and after his own fashion was a man of his word beyond doubt. This was, in fact, one of his hobbies. The spirit of his vows he made no scruple of setting at naught, but the letter was a bond inviolable. Now, it was this latter peculiarity in his disposition, of which Kate's ingenuity enabled us one fine day, not long after our interview in the dining room, to take a very unexpected advantage, and, having thus, in the fashion of all modern bards and orators, exhausted in prolegomena all the time at my command, and nearly all the room at my disposal, I will sum up in a few words what constitutes the whole pith of the story. It happened then, so the fates ordered it, that among the naval acquaintances of my betrothed were two gentlemen who had just set foot upon the shores of England after a year's absence, each in foreign travel. In company with these gentlemen, my cousin and I preconcertedly paid Old Rumgudgeon a visit on the afternoon of Sunday, October the 10th, just three weeks after the memorable decision which had so cruelly defeated our hopes. For about half an hour the conversation ran upon ordinary topics, but at last we contrived quite naturally to give it the following turn. Captain Pratt. Well, I have been absent just one year. Just one year today as I live. Let me see. Yes, this is October the 10th. You remember, Mr. Rumgudgeon, I called this day year to bid you goodbye. And by the way, it does seem something like a coincidence, does it not that our friend Captain Smitherton here has been absent exactly a year also, a year today? Smitherton. Yes, just one year to a fraction. You will remember, Mr. Rumgudgeon, that I called with Captain Pratehall on this very day last year to pay my parting respects. Uncle. Yes, 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 I remember it very well. Very queer indeed. Both of you gone just one year. A very strange coincidence indeed. Just what Dr. Double L.D. would denominate an extraordinary occurrence of events. Dr. Dub, Kate, interrupting. To be sure, Papa, it is something strange. But then Captain Pratt and Captain Smitherton didn't go altogether the same route, and that makes a difference, you know. I didn't know any such thing, you huzzy. How should I? I think it only makes the matter more remarkable. Dr. Double L.D. Why, Papa, Captain Pratt went round Cape Horn, and Captain Smitherton doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Precisely. The one went east and the other went west, you jade, and they both have gone quite round the world. By the by, Dr. Double L.D. Captain Pratt, you must come and spend the evening with us tomorrow, I said. You and Smitherton, you can tell us all about your voyage, and, well, have a game of whist, and... Whist, my dear fellow, you forget. Tomorrow will be Sunday. Some other evening. 
Oh, no, fie. Robert's not quite so bad as that. Today's Sunday. To be sure, to be sure. I beg both your pardons, but I can't be so much mistaken. I know tomorrow's Sunday, because... What are you all thinking about? Wasn't yesterday Sunday, I should like to know? Yesterday, indeed. You are out. Today's Sunday. I say, don't I know? Oh, no. Tomorrow's Sunday. You are all mad, every one of you. I am as positive that yesterday was Sunday as I am that I sit upon this chair. Kate jumped up eagerly. I see it. I see it all. Papa, this is a judgment upon you, about, about you know what. Let me alone, and I'll explain it all in a minute. It's a very simple thing indeed. Captain Smitherton says that yesterday was Sunday, so it was. He is right. Cousin Bobby and Uncle and I say that today is Sunday, so it is. We are right. Captain Pratt maintains that tomorrow will be Sunday, and so it will. He is right too. The fact is we are all right, and thus three Sundays have come together in a week. Smitherton, after a pause. By the by, Pratt, Kate has us completely. What fools we two are. Mr. Rumgudgeon, the matter stands thus. The earth, you know, is 24,000 miles in circumference. Now this globe of the earth turns upon its own axis, revolves, spins round these 24,000 miles of extent, going from west to east in precisely 24 hours. Do you understand, Mr. Rumgudgeon? To be sure, to be sure. Dr. Dub, well, sir, that is the rate of 1,000 miles per hour. Now suppose that I sail from this position a thousand miles east. Of course, I anticipate the rising of the sun here at London by just one hour. I see the sun rise one hour before you do. Proceeding in the same direction yet another thousand miles, I anticipate the rising by two hours. Another thousand, and I anticipate it by three hours. And so on, until I go entirely round the globe and back to this spot when, having gone twenty-four thousand miles east, I anticipate the rising of the London sun by no less than twenty-four hours. That is to say, I am a day in advance of your time. Understa understand, eh? But, double L-D, Captain Pratt... On the contrary, when he had sailed a thousand miles west of this position, was an hour, and when he had sailed twenty-four thousand miles west, was twenty-four hours, or one day, behind the time at London. Thus with me, yesterday was Sunday, thus with you, today is Sunday, and thus with Pratt, tomorrow will be Sunday, and what is more, Mr. Rumgudgeon, it is positively clear that we are all right, for there can be no philosophical reason assigned why the idea of one of us should have preference over that of the other. My eyes! Well, Kate, Bobby, this is a judgment upon me, as you say. But I am a man of my word. Mark that. You shall have her, boy, plum and all, when you please. Done up, by Jove, three Sundays in a row. I'll go and take double L.D.'s opinion upon that. 